following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Today we're going to jump back into our, our series on the shaping virtues of the Christian life. <clears throat> and we've talked about how this is really, we could call this the, the shaping virtues of the Christian church. Because in reality, these are virtues that should be on display in a church and in a people who believe that Jesus is king, who submit to his word, and are filled with the Holy Spirit. And and they, these are things, honestly, <clears throat> that through the last 20 years, we have just tried to cultivate into CLF and just say, listen, let's keep the gospel on display. And as we've done this, certain traits have kind of popped out. And these are some that we have picked out. Our denomination, thank God, has also done this because if you go to any Sovereign Grace Church, you're going to get the same feel in a Sovereign Grace Church that you get with us. And at the heart of our church really does stand this glorious truth. It's that Jesus Christ is our Savior and King. He has come to redeem us. He's come to save us. He's come to live in our place, die in our place. He's ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he is right now overseeing all the work of this world. And he is doing everything according to the counsel of his great plans And the people who believe in him will be transformed to display the fruits of Christ. So shaping virtues, qualities of people that are transformed by Jesus. So far in this series, we've covered humility, we've covered encouragement, we've covered gratitude. Today, we're going to talk about generosity. It kind of comes at an odd time. Um, Last week, if you remember something, if you're at church... Mike Keller prayed something at the end of the service I thought was very profound, and he just prayed that God would give us a home. This morning we come into this building, we're freezing to death, we can't, and we can't, we have no climate control, just so you know, we have no control over the AC or heat. Uh, we just don't have that. The, 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 the live stream, the stuff is going wonky in the background, there's so many various things happening, and it's another reminder to us, listen, this is not our home, and I'm just being honest with CLF, we need a new home. We need a new home. And I know people are saying, just go back to the old building. We, we don't have the ability right now. We are, we're praying that through. The old building would require some things of us we are not yet prepared for. And we don't understand that. And you need to understand that. There's a deep need on the horizon. We need a new home. We're going to talk about that briefly at the end of the sermon. <clears throat> but there's another reason why I think we've got all these wonky things happen. I just want to be honest with you. When it comes to dealing with money, It is one of the greatest idols in the American church. And I'm a firm believer of this. We have an adversary right now that does not want you to hear what I'm about to share with you. Because if the Christian church would understand what gospel-motivated generosity would be, and I'm going to be frank with you, there would not be one need in the Christian church. Not one. Because God would meet every one of them through the people. Because we would understand that money is a gift from God to be utilized for kingdom purposes, and then God will provide for all of our needs. And that's what we're going to see today in the text. We're going to talk about generosity today, right? And I'll get to that more in a moment. Next week, Robert's going to preach on joy. 
Then I'm going to preach on servanthood, and then Bruce is going to preach on godliness. The seven shaping virtues, but today, generosity. And I can feel in the room, right? The moment we a preacher instantly talks about money, if you're brand new, you're probably going, fine. You know, we get the senior guy back, and guess what he does? Talking about money, right? I mean, because we've got pastors talking about money. And we get freaked out about people talking about money. But here's what I want to do. I want, to, I want us to settle in and just settle down, and here's why. It may surprise you that there's some debate on this, but Jesus probably talked more about money than he did about hell. Jesus talked about money, our talents, our time, our lives a lot. And no one, and the other thing I want you to understand is, there should never be a motivation from about generosity that comes from the pulpit. So nobody should browbeat you, manipulate you, connive you to give extra. This is an internal work of God that's to be Godward between you and the Lord alone. When I'm in a, when I'm working with people in marriage counseling and they come in and they tell me they're serious, they want to get talking about serious things. There's two things I know of that people are serious when they want to, they want to really get down to brass tacks. They really want to change their marriage. You know what they are? The first one is they'll open their checkbook and they'll say, hey, we need help with our money. I know they're serious. The second one is they'll talk about their intimacy, marital intimacy. I know then these people are serious because they're willing to open up the most intimate things of their lives and say, we need help. When it comes to dealing with money, we've got to understand this is an internal Godward thing that should be obvious that you're generous, but it's also something only God can do in you. This should not come from the pulpit, even though the pulpit should be talking about money, right? The second thing I want you to be aware of is, in the American church, we have allowed prosperity theology to rob us of the privilege of talking about money. And here's what I mean by that. The prosperity gospel, which I don't like to call it a gospel, prosperity theology has created a cringe factor in the church because basically it manipulates people into this false teaching that says the more you give, the more you will get. Or if you're not rich, it's because you haven't, you don't have enough faith or you're not giving enough to the church. So when preachers of this false teaching talk about money like this, they connive and they twist and they manipulate people to give. But listen, you've heard me say this before if you've been here very long. A truth that is misapplied or wrongly taught doesn't mean we should stop talking about the truth. There's a truth in Scripture about our gospel-motivated generosity that is found in Scripture. You're going to see it this morning from the best text in the Bible I know of about giving that... That's in the Bible because you're going to find the Bible talks about this a lot. This is not some fringe idea. So what we do as preachers is we've let prosperity theology rob us of the reality of what's in God's word. And we shy away from it because we're an American church that has an idol of money. And we don't talk about it. Because when we talk about it, people get nervous and they say the preacher's conniving and manipulating me, when in reality, that should never be the case. What should happen is, this should be Godward. It should be motivated by something that you believe and understand about the gospel. 
And it should transform the way that you live life. That's the reality of it. Right? So we need to talk about this issue. Right? So in talking about generosity, here's what we're going to learn today, Lord willing. And this is in your notes. This is the big idea. Generosity comes from understanding the gospel and being willing to help others as God has helped us. Now notice something in the idea of generosity. There's nothing to do there about a sob story. There's nothing to do there about you give more, you'll get more for yourself. You'll get that Cadillac you've always wanted. You can see what it is absolutely motivated by. One thing. What has God done for us? And so when you, when we think about generosity, we've got to see it from this lens. It comes from understanding the gospel and being willing to help others as God has helped us. Okay? So let's open our Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> let's stand together. We're going to read, we're going to read 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15, and then we're going to flip over to chapter 9 and read 6 through 15. This is the reading of God's word. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this... Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in all our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to do, to, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased eased and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now skip over to 2 Corinthians 9, and let's pick up the story in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. May God bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, the church in Corinth was one of the more wealthy churches that Paul planted. They had wealthy businessmen in the church. They had wealthy shipmakers in the church. They were so divided in this church, it was crazy. The wealthy people sat in the front room of the congregation, served their communion elements to one another, and they gave the little to the poor in the back, who were in the back of the room. They were, they were a terribly divided church, but they were a wealthy church. Lots of city wealth, lots of family wealth. And during this particular time, there was a famine in the city of Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem Christians were in deep need. At some point, Paul had informed the Corinthians and other churches that he planted about this issue and asked them to prayerfully consider sending a financial gift. So giving a particular need to a particular church. And the church at Corinth, at some time around this text, made a decision that they would give a financial gift to the church, to this uh, church in Jerusalem. But as time waned, so did their desire. They had not fulfilled their obligation. They had instead given reluctantly, given sparingly. And so 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 was written to encourage them to fulfill what they had already said they were going to do. Now, you know the moment, right? I mean, here in a few weeks, we're going to show up a video of our Pakistani brothers and sisters and you're going to see our need for coats and your heart's going to go out and your kids are going to go, Mom, can we give $7,000 to that? And you're going to say, yes, right? And you're going to get all geared up about this thing. And then all of a sudden it's going to come down time to it and you're going to go, oh. That's the moment that's happening here. They've seen a need. They responded, yes, absolutely. And then the desire begins to wane. But what we're going to notice about this text is something fascinating. You notice Paul never one time in the text mentions the need again. He never manipulates them. He never browbeats them. But here's what Paul does. He gives them hope in the gospel of Christ. And what he does, which is fascinating, is he takes the gospel... And he puts the gospel on display in such a way that says, do you see your generous God? Yes. Then if your God is generous, 
What do you think God is calling you to be? He connects our generosity to God and to his gospel, and then he connects it to the gospel mission by talking about the effect of their generosity on the people that they actually give gifts to. Now, I want to add one other thing to this text so we can look at it very clearly. Now, listen, I'm I'm a huge fan of expositional preaching, especially right now in the day and age of prophecy by which we live, where, listen, so many preachers are taking Old Testament prophecies and laying those on top of America. you got to be really careful. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is written about something specific. Because when you read the Bible, you're going to read about two different types of giving or generosity. You're going to read about giving to your local church regularly, consistently, and faithfully to that church's local mission, to their gospel work. And then you're going to read about special offerings, about moments to give when there's a special need that arises. Okay? Second Corinthians 8 and 9 are about that second type, the special offering, like what do you do when there's a special need that arises? Okay? However, what we cannot do, and you've got to be careful here, is in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, there are principles that would tie into your giving to your local church. So while it doesn't directly apply or say this is about giving to your local church, the principles that are involved will drive this discussion. Right? So you gotta see that very clearly. This is about a special offering. It's about moments when you go, wow, there's a need. It's the Pakistani thing or, or, uh, you know, Operation Christmas Child or, uh, man, we got a need, we got a need for a building. Special offerings. Something separate than what you're normally regularly giving to the local church. Okay? So, so let's start by looking at the first point in your outline, which is the motive of generosity. And we gotta start here. To give us a, a grasp of what we're dealing with here, okay? Paul begins chapter 8 with an amazing example of a very generous church. Now you'd think, in your mind, a generous church is a wealthy church. That's not the Macedonians. The Macedonians were extremely joyful and extremely poor. As a matter of fact, they... Their giving, according to Paul, was of their own accord. They gave beyond their means and even to the degree that Paul says they were overflowed with a wealth of generosity even though they were poor. And Paul says their, their gifts were actually unexpected. There's some idea that Paul actually might have discourage the Macedonians from giving. To say to them, listen, I know you want to give this much money, but I know what your needs are. It's like your kids. You know, your kids will come to you and they say, Mommy, I have been listening in Sunday school, and I want to give all of my savings plus the future car you're going to buy me to missions. And you have to say, hey, can we just tone it down a little bit, right? I mean, love your giving heart. Paul looks at the Macedonians, and it was so unexpected. These people gave generously, joyfully, out of their own poverty. They went above and beyond the call. That's what Paul's saying. But notice the the reason they did this. 
Notice verse 5. The reason is they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then notice, and then by the will of the Lord to us. Do you see the order? The Macedonians were generous people because they first gave themselves to God. And then, by the will of the Lord, they gave themselves to their leaders. In other words, their giving was motivated by God, not their leader. Because they were first given, they belonged to the Lord first. And then when their leaders said, hey, there's a need in Jerusalem, they said, absolutely. Because why? They were given to the Lord first. Now, Paul's going to show us why they were given to the Lord when he gets to the Corinthians. Because after showing us the example of the Macedonians, these joyful, impoverished uh, people giving beyond their means, joyfully giving beyond their means, given to the Lord first, and then when the leaders said something, they responded, Paul then appeals to the Corinthians. And notice what he does when he appeals to them. Notice verse 9. He appeals to them to finish the commitment they made, and notice verse 9. Notice what he does. He shows them the motivation for their generosity comes from the gospel. Notice, in the middle of a text on giving, Paul writes, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, this is astounding. You may say to yourself, the gospel has nothing to do with my money. The Apostle Paul would say, the gospel has everything to do with your money. See, rather than appeal with an arm twist or a sob story about how bad it is in Jerusalem, you've got to get this done, Paul appeals to them through the gospel. I have to ask why. Why does Paul do this? Well, here's a few reasons why I think Paul did it. There is no greater moment in the history of the universe of someone giving themselves for the needs of others than the gospel of Christ. None. Friends, we are in need You may sit in America and you may think your bank is full and your health is good. But we are in need. We are, our sin has separated us from the living God. We are in rebellion against him. We are dominated by our own sin and we are under the curse and wrath of God. And the only way to meet that need It's for the God-man, Jesus, to come and live the life we should have lived that we won't ever live and die in our place to pay for our debt. We were poor. He was rich. He gave up his riches and impoverished himself to save us from our bankruptcy. There's no greater moment of giving to a need than the gospel. But listen, there's no greater act of generosity than the gospel. A verse you all know very well, John 3, 16. 
For God so loved the world. Look at the word. He gave. He gave his son. Gave his son. God gave, meaning he overflows with generosity toward us to such a degree that the God of the universe says, here's my son. Wow. Showing us God is not here to take something from our lives. Oh, no, no, no. God is present in the universe to give us everything. But there's no greater act of love than the gospel. I mean, 1 John 3.16 says it clearly, doesn't it? By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Meaning, the biblical definition for love is Jesus laying down his life for us. But friends, there's also no greater power to change us from self-centered people to living for God and others than the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us this clearly. He died for all that those who might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised. Do you see what the gospel does? The gospel frees us from the tyranny of selfishness. And to apply it to our generosity, the gospel Freeze your pocketbooks from your self-focus. John Piper put it like this. The reason the gospel should take away our selfishness and make us joyful and generous is that it takes away the only basis for selfishness. The basis for selfishness is the notion that giving less away and keeping more for ourselves will provide more happiness and fulfillment to our lives. But verse 9 shows that God's purpose in sending his son was to create joyful, loving, generous givers. Now, if God values joyful, loving generosity so much as to give his beloved son to create it in his people then we can be absolutely assured that when we are more generous, we will be more happy and more fulfilled because God is bound to work mightily for those whose behavior he highly values. See, what the gospel does, it changes everything. The gospel creates a people who mirror the joyful generosity of their God, and there's no greater display of the joyful generosity of your God than the, than the gospel of Jesus. So when the Macedonians first gave of themselves to God, it was a revelation of the gospel's power in them. See, they cannot first give themselves to God without first being gospel people. And when you and I give generously because of the gospel, it reveals gospel power at work in us. Paul said this in verse 8 very clearly, that our earnestness to others, meaning our giving to eagerness and desire to fulfill generosity, proves our love is genuine. I've said to people often, and I, I tell them this when they come to the counseling office, um, 
I say, listen, if you ever want to check your idols, it's real simple to do. Pull out your checkbook and pull out your calendar and compare them. What does it say about your idols? What does it say about your belief in the gospel? Now, here's what gospel-motivated generosity does to you. When it changes things. It changes the way you, you ask questions about your money. When we see a need in others or we know of a need in the church, we don't ask anymore this question, can we afford it? That's normally the question. Can I afford to give this? No, we ask another question. What does the gospel say about my giving? What is the gospel demanding of my giving? We ask in light of what Christ has done for me, how can I not give? See, the question is not, do I give? The first question is, how can I not give? We gotta start with holding ourselves back from giving. That's what gospel-motivated giving does to you. We ask questions like this. Is there selfishness or greed or any other sin keeping me from giving? And here's another one. Does my giving reflect the love and appreciation and joy that I have in receiving the gospel? Now, what you'll notice about this is this takes all the percentages out of it. Let me tell you the number one question I get about giving in the church. The number one question. Am I supposed to give 10%? And my response is, is the gospel worth 10% to you? See, this takes percentages out of the way. That's why when you get to the New Testament, you'll never find the word tithe. And you'll never find percentages. Because what the gospel does is, it takes percentages out because, listen, percentages are measurable. You know what we do? We can actually give 10% and not be gospel motivated. You're aware of that, right? I just do the thing that's supposed to be done and not get to the heart of what giving is saying. Giving is saying, God, what you have done is so compelling and amazing in my life, and I joyfully, gladly give to you what is already yours anyway. Gospel-motivated giving goes to the heart, not our calculators. See, Jill and I have stopped asking ourselves the question, what percentage can we give to still be right with God? And started asking... In light of what Christ is doing in our lives, and in light of the gospel, what should we give that would reflect our thanksgiving to God and our dependence upon God? You can see the difference of the questions. Now, the Bible's assumption is that understanding the gospel affects our material possessions. And you go, really? Yes. Look at 1 John 3 one time with me again, and notice the next verse. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. Well, what's the application? That we should lay down our lives for one another. But what does that mean? Take a bullet? I mean, get a sword through the heart? You know, you know, jump in front of a bus? No, he says what? If you see your brother in need and you've got the ability to meet it and you don't meet that need, how does the love of Christ abide in you? 
Do you see what Paul, what John does? He says, here's gospel application at its finest. If you want to know what it means to lay down your life for others, you give. If you have an abundance and you see a need in your church, in your in people and friends that you know need it, and you don't meet that need, are you applying the gospel? See, the gospel, what it does is motivates our generosity by showing us the greatest example of loving generosity we have ever seen, Jesus. And it empowers us to be generous like our Savior. Now we have to start there. Because what you're gonna know, what you're noticing is, this is not about some sob story that we hear, some big need that goes on, or any of those things. This is simply laying in your lap this question. Does your generosity reflect the gospel? And only you can answer that before the Lord. The question would be then, okay, so let's say I want to do this. What does that even look like? Well, the good thing is Paul tells us. So let's look at the second point, which is the manner of our generosity. First, you're going to notice giving generously like this is actually a grace of God. You cannot give like this without God's grace at work. And when you do it, it reveals the grace of God. Notice how Paul talks about generosity at the beginning of chapter 8. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And then he just talks about their generosity. Meaning this act of grace is their generosity. Verse 6. Accordingly, he urged Titus that as he started the work among the Corinthians, he should complete among them this act of grace also. Speaking of generosity. Verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Gospel-motivated generosity looks like grace at work. That's what it looks like. Because it's, as we'll talk about later, it's so otherworldly. Why would the Macedonians, who were poor... Give of their poverty. One reason. Because of the gospel. It overwhelmed them. It's the only power that can change us from being selfish people where we want to get all we can to becoming people who love to give. See, generosity is an act of God's grace in us. And then it's an act of God's grace through us. Because we have the ability to meet a need that nobody else can do. But the second thing you'll notice about the manner of our giving is, when it's gospel motivated is, it's not under compulsion, it's driven by compassion. Another way to say this is, it's not driven by law or command, it's driven by love. See, what we do with preaching like this is we go, oh, there goes the preacher. He's going to command us to give. No, no, no. Preacher's not commanding you to give because that's not in the text. 
What the preacher's appealing to you is the gospel is so powerful and so wonderful. Why would we not give? And love for God, love for others, changes how we view our possessions and our time, our energy, our money. Notice how Paul talks about this throughout the text. Chapter three, chapter 8, verse 3. Speaking of the Macedonians who gave of their own accord. You know what that means? It was free. They weren't manipulated to give. They gave it willingly, freely. Verse 8. <clears throat> this is not a command but a display of love. Chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. See, grace, gospel-motivated generosity is joyful giving, and it's free will. I know of churches that it just boggles my brain that... At the beginning of the year, they take a pledge, find out what everybody's going to give, base their budget off of it. And I know of churches actually send a bill in the mail. Yeah. In my studies on this this week, I, I, I was reminded of something I'd forgotten about, that in some European countries, they have a thing called the church tax. You know what the church tax is? You say to the government, this is the church you go to. And right off the top of your paycheck, they take 7 to 8% of your check off the top, and they send it right to your church. Now, for all of you who love taxes, that'd be great, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, <clears throat> right? Some go, man, that make it so much easier. Holy smokes, I just, that way I could just give to the church. What does that remove? It removes the motivation of the gospel. It removes it from being, you know, compassionate loving, of your own accord. And it puts it in the realm of compulsion and law. And it takes away the cheerful giver. The gospel changes everything about our generosity. Like our God, we now have a heart for the needs of others and we give because He has given Himself to us. That's why we give. He loves His love is alive in our hearts and it drives us to generosity. We don't have to have a law. We don't have to have our preacher get up and say, all right, y'all, everybody commit 10%. Let's go. That never has to happen. Because the gospel is so overwhelming, we don't need a hard luck story or a video to go, oh man, I got to give. No, the gospel says every day of our lives, Christ has come for you. And so our generosity is willing, it's joyful. We're happy to do it because God is happy to give to us. But the third manner that you're going to notice in the text that we give is we give abundantly. That's where those of you who may not think you have much are checking out because you go, dude, I'm, I'm poor, dude. Well, my response to that is the Macedonians were also poor but they gave with a wealth of generosity. They gave abundantly. So there's a way to do this that is, whether you're rich or you're poor, that is has the same manner in it. <clears throat> Verse 9, 6 tells us this very clearly. We're going to talk more about the reaping bountifully in a moment, but for a moment, look at the heart of the gospel-motivated giver. They give abundantly, not sparingly. 
Meaning, they're not holding back. It's one of the things you got to love about kids when they do give. Their hearts are in it, man. They're dialed up. It's like, oh, man, I just want to give. And I, I kind of wish in my own heart sometimes I would have that same joyful, faith-filled, let's give that much. Let's go for it. Now, the reason we, we have to ask, why do we give sparingly? And the reason we give sparingly, if we're being honest with ourselves, is we don't think we're going to have enough at the end of the month. We actually think something about God that we would never admit publicly. You know what it is? We honestly believe that God will not meet our needs. We honestly believe that God is taking our gifts from us that we can use for a power bill or food or whatever it may be. And he's then giving that to somebody else. John Piper, again, just goes after this. Here's what he wrote. The sparing heart has a relationship to God that makes him a taker rather than a giver. If my life is being drained away by God because he is so incessantly and solely demanding, then I feel like grasping after the things of the world to meet my needs. If every time I look up, I see the the pointing finger of God demanding, give me, give me, give me. How can I look back down on the needs of the world and say, take me. I will gladly spend and be spent for your good. Friends, let me ask you a question. What does the gospel say about God? It says he is the giver. He is not a taker. Young people, listen up. You may say in yourself, if I hold back my morality because I want to get something God's taking from me and not see that you keeping your morality before God is God giving you something in marriage, you're going to miss the beauty of marriage. If you as a parent think to yourself and as a leader of your home, if we just keep back all that we've been given Because God is going to take from us to give to somebody else. He'll not meet our needs. You're leading your children to be the same way. If we think God is demandingly pointing his finger going, give, 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 because he's the taker, we're going to miss the beauty of what gospel-motivated generosity is all about. We give... Because God is the giver. And as we'll see in a moment, the results of our giving is he gives us more to give. The gospel says the only way we can give abundantly is by knowing that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The gospel says... He who did not spare his own son, but delivered us from us all, how will he not with him always also give us and graciously give us all things? The gospel says God is a giver. So gospel-motivated generosity gives abundantly, not sparingly, because it understands God's the giver, not the taker. And so when you look at this manner, what you notice, some things are fascinating. 
Gospel-motivated giving reveals grace at work in us. It proves it. It is compelled by Christ's love for us and others. And it's abundantly generous, like our God. To be honest with you, um, my home life, my, my checkbook is a wide open thing, even to our elders. I, I'm fully comfortable if they ever said to me, we want to open up your books and just see how you're giving. You know why? Because if my generosity reveals something about the grace of God at work in me, and I'm short in the grace of God being displayed in my life, I want to grow to be more like Jesus. Because we, we want to be people that display this glorious gospel everywhere. So here's an odd question for you. If the Lord, which he already knows, were to pull out your giving record, would it reveal his grace at work in your life? Would it show that you are indeed compelled by Christ's love for you? Would your giving mirror your God's generosity to you? Now again, you can see, this takes the percentages completely out of the game, doesn't it? It has nothing to do with giving 10%. It has nothing to do with... This gets right to the heart of it. And it's where it should be. Does the manner of your generosity reflect the happy nature and generous nature of your God? That's the question that we have to wrestle with. Now let's look at the last thing, which is the results of generosity. Now listen, as you're, as you're in this moment, listen, I can feel the conviction in the room. I'm just going to be straight with you. I can feel it in my own heart. Here's what I want to challenge you with. Don't stop with just being convicted. Ask the Lord to do as he wants you to do according to your own means and according to your own heart. And then respond to God. Let's look at the results because there are results. You're going to notice something fascinating in chapter 8, verse 10. Gospel-motivated generosity, Paul says, benefits us. Paul says, this is my judgment. This benefits you. Now see, we immediately go, how is it going to benefit me in the sense of I'm giving away my own possessions to serve others. I'm going to be without them. Well, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, that it's more blessed to give than receive. Well, you're aware, right, that your world believes this too. Fascinating study was done a few years ago by the, the uh, Psychological Science Journal. They, they did a test <clears throat> to find out how people would respond to keeping their money or giving their money. They took 502 participants and they played 10 rounds of a word puzzle game. And every word puzzle game, they gave them five cents per round to spend. One group kept it. And another group they asked to give to a charity of their choosing. 
And it was reported that those who gave away their money saw their happiness decline at a less rapid pace than those who kept their money. Those who kept their money got more and more depressed more quickly. The co-author of the article wrote this. If you want to sustain happiness over time, past research tells us that we need to take a break from what we're currently consuming and experiencing something new. Our research reveals that the kind of thing that the kind of thing may matter more than assumed. Listen to this. Repeated giving, even in identical ways to identical others, may continue to feel relatively fresh and relatively pleasurable the more we do it. Now here's what you do. We go, see there, the world proved it. No, 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 no. The world is just showing us what God's words already said. And the reason this is true is because when you were created by God, before sin ever entered the world, you were created to be a giver. Sin has created us to be takers. And what the gospel does, you've got to love what the gospel does, it reorients us to the way that God created us. And so gospel-motivated generosity, one result is it's good for you. It's good. It's good for you. You may say, dude, I can't afford it. My response to you is you can't afford not to. It's too good for your soul. It's too good for your emotions. But another way that we see in the text it's good for us is really a fascinating thing. It says when we give abundantly, we will reap abundantly. Wow. You see this in chapter 9, verse 6. In chapter 9, verses 11 through 8 through 11. Now we gotta be careful here. Cause here's where the prosperity theology lurks. You give more, you get more. You give more, you got more to spend. You get more, you got that Lexus. Y'all want a bigger church? You gotta get more. Lock each other in the room till we get the eight million dollars. That's pathetic. That's so low thinking. In the Old Testament, when they opened up the floodgates to give to the temple, guess what? They had to shut them off from giving because they gave too much. So what does this mean? Well, verse 8 is coming off the heels of Paul saying God loves a cheerful giver. And God's love for a cheerful giver means he will make grace abound to the cheerful giver in all times so that we will abound in every good Work, meaning the good work that he's talking about in the text is generosity. Therefore, we can say a cheerful giver, God has grace abounding in their lives because God has promised to meet a cheerful giver in ways that are excelling and abounding in their lives. I don't know about you. I want that. I want grace abounding in my life. When I read about Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he gives you a greater grace. Whatever that is, I want that. Right? So if I read God's grace abounds to the cheerful giver, I automatically go, how can I do that? So when you read verse 6, that we will reap bountifully, if we sow bountifully, here's Paul's point. Listen clearly. When you give abundantly, 
God will provide for you in such a way that you can give more. Isn't that odd? When you give, God will provide in such a way that you give more. Verses 10 and 11 even sum this up. God will supply and multiply your seed and will increase your harvest of righteousness and will enrich you in every way. In other words, what he's saying is God gives us the seed to scatter at the front end. And when we scatter the seed abundantly at the front end, then on the back end, God drops in more seed to be scattered again. Front end and back end of giving, God is providing both. He provides more seed. For what purpose? The seed is giving generously. So we can't say, the more we give, God gives us more to spend on ourselves. See, that's where we go wrong in the American church. Because what happens is we give, God provides more, meets our needs at the end of the month, and we're amazed, like, wow, what happened here? And we go spend it on ourselves, and then at the end of the next month, we don't have enough. And we go, what the heck happened? I gave to God, He didn't give back. It's because we took what God gave us for ourselves. Not with this open-handedness that says, God, it's all yours anyway. According to the gospel, how would you want this to be distributed? Now, what's fascinating is the principle that you see here is this. When we give to God what is God's, so here, the seed, scatter abundantly, God on the back end will meet us in ways that are beyond our wildest imagination for the sake of giving more. So what you have is you empty the bucket here, God fills the bucket here to be empty the bucket here. So you can empty, I mean, it's back and forth. And you go, nowhere does God ever not meet you. I'm not going to blow on Achilles, I promise. <clears throat> now listen, God is not promising here to make you wealthier. He's promising to make it possible for you to be more generous. He's promising that what you give, listen clearly, God somehow will replace For the purpose of what? Gospel-motivated giving. When we sow abundantly, we will reap abundantly. Let me me ask you this. Do you want to have an abundant harvest in your life? I do. Then guess what you got to do? You sow abundantly. Now, the last result is thanksgiving and glory to God. Notice verses... 9, 11 through 13. When we are enriched to be generous, notice what it produces. Thanksgiving to God. And he adds, it produces overflowing thanksgiving to God. Meaning, the receivers of our gifts will glorify God because our confession of faith has led to our generosity. Now, what's fascinating about gospel-motivated generosity is it is so otherworldly. You know, you know I'm going to write on this tomorrow. I'm still musing on it in my brains, but you're going to notice something in this text. Paul is telling us, and God's telling us, in your money and your giving, do not think like an accountant. Think like a farmer. A farmer, yeah. Think like a farmer. You know what farmers do? 
Farmers sow seed abundantly. They pray for rain. And they wait on the harvest. You know what an accountant does? They bean count. They measure things up. They line it up. Does it make sense on the bottom line? If it does, go for it on the front end. That's not how we think. We think like farmers, not accountants. But yet in America, guess how you're thinking? Like an investment broker. You're thinking like an accountant. That's not how you think in your giving. Because this is so otherworldly. You know what it does? The farmer is dependent upon God for the seed to sow, to sow abundantly. And he's dependent on the rain to bring about the harvest. And he's dependent on more seed to come from that harvest so he can do it all over again. It's so otherworldly that when people then receive a gift like this, they can't help but thank God. Paul Barnett wrote it like this. When we opt out of giving, we opt out of the privilege of meeting human needs and deny ourselves the honor of promoting God's glory. Both giver and receiver will know that God's grace, embodied in Christ, has started a chain reaction of generosity, thanksgiving, and fellowship. Wow. John Piper wrote it like this. God gets the glory when people give generously. Why? Doesn't the giver get the glory? Exactly. The giver gets the glory. And the people who sow most bountifully display most vividly that their God is an inexhaustible giver. Friends, is this how you think about your giving to your church, to your brothers and sisters in need? I can, I can tell you, I was just there. The brothers and sisters in the Philippines, they thank God that you give. They are, they are blown away that a church would send one of their best to serve them and care for them and lead them and love them to help them build a denomination that is going to be gospel-centric in a nation that's going through the very first reformation they've ever had. As people in the droves are coming out of the Catholic Church and hearing the gospel for the first time, they are praising God. When I get up to preach to these people, they applaud, not because John Wayne, the Westerner, walked in the room, but because of your gifts. Our brothers and sisters in closed countries that we have given goats and coats and pastoral training, thank God for your generosity. But I want you to, I just want to drop something in your minds. Can you just for a moment come, come into my world and think about the people at CLF in 20 years? I'm 73 years old at that time. I think about that day. I may or may not be the pastor here. Have you ever thought about this? Your gifts right now to help us get this home we need will one day be people that are worshiping, celebrating, advancing the gospel farther than you and I would ever dream and will thank God because of your gifts. And you may be dead and gone. I think about that day. 
my wife will tell you I think about it probably a little morbidly than I should. I think about who the next guy is. I think about training young leaders. Why do you think I'm invested in young leaders tonight? I'm invested in young leaders last this last weekend. Why do you think I'm involved in CLF students? I want to be involved in every generation of our church so I can look at young leaders and I can see them in the eye. You know why? Because in 20 years, those dudes and those gals are going to be leading this thing. And I want them to know, I want them to know that their pastor did everything he could to help them advance the gospel when they're my age. And you think about that day. Because if you think about that day, listen, and you understand what God's done to you through the gospel, here's what happens. It just overflows with generosity. Think about that day. The misnomer right now, people have it, I give to the church, that goes to the building fund. No, the building fund is separate. We need you to give differently. You're going to have to give more to the building fund. We've only got about half a million dollars in the building fund. That's not enough to build an $8 million building or to buy a property that would be $3 million for us to do something. We need help. It's a need. But the gospel's got to motivate this. This cannot come from... The pastor going, hey, everybody, check a box. Let's all do this. Make commitments together. That's part of it, but it got to come from the heart. So here's what I want to ask you to pray about. Ask the Lord this question. Does your generosity reflect his? Ask God if your generosity reflects your thanksgiving for the gospel. And ask him... To empower you to be generous. Because listen, y'all and myself are not naturally generous. And then listen, just act. Move out in faith, trusting God that he who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. Let's pray. Father, we we acknowledge how selfish we are. Church, it's okay to tell the Lord that. God, my my self-focus, my worries and fears lead the way when it comes to money. Would you forgive us? And for those of us who are generous, I pray that this sermon would not be one that we go, okay, I'm doing well. That instead we would say, man, God, thank you for helping me be generous. Help me be more generous. Those of us who are stingy, I pray that you would help the gospel just take root. It is the most powerful motivating force in the universe, especially in this area.
And Father, we, we do pray. There's so many needs. I think of the needs around the world that are going on right now. I think about the needs in our own church that we have right now. Help us to be responsive because of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.